Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster still in these current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm your host, Scott Challoner, and I'm joined on today's programme by Lorraine Nicholson. Lorraine is the Training Division Director at Wright Foundation Community Interest Company, the UK's leading training provider in exercise referral and specialist conditions to the leisure industry. Lorraine, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us on this fine day. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lorraine, for, of course, uh, taking the time to join us. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is really to understand your take on leadership. So if we dive straight in and look at that word leader, what does that mean to you and how does it really resonate? Well, actually, um, what it means to me is, I don't know if you remember when we were all young, we used to play a game called Follow My Leader. Mm. And um, I just loved playing that game and always wanted to be in the front and lead people. Um, But as you grow older, you realise that if you want to be in the front and have people follow you, you've got to do something very special. You've got to inspire them. They've got to believe in you and then they will follow you. So really, that's that's what uh, I feel a leader is. Mm, very, very interesting um, view there, uh, Lorraine. You can certainly see where that uh, comes from. And if we think about um, your leadership style, uh, how would you go about describing that um, in the context of Right Foundation? I lead by example. Um, I've always been um, taught over the years that you should never um, ask anyone to do anything that you wouldn't be prepared to do yourself. Because um, I'm a people person, and my main focus is on the people in our team. Because you need to know what their strengths and weaknesses are, what makes them tick. Um, after all, if we have no team, we have no business. So always, I'm always a hundred percent honest with everyone. Try to gain their trust and respect, um, and then hopefully they will be happy and follow and support me. Really. Mm, very important point uh, there, Lorraine, that humility there to, of course, uh, take people with you, lead by example and show that you're really on an equal footing. I think that's um, so, so, so important. And I think during these current times, for sure, leaders who will have shown that humility in a business context will more than likely be those getting the best out of their um, employees, won't they? Because it will be their employees who will be willing to go above and beyond to just keep things ticking over. And we have heard really some fantastic stories of how people have done just that, go above and beyond to just keep things running during this time, whether they've had to adapt to working remotely, whether they have been continuing to work on site, or whether they've been furloughed and as a result of that have been using their time to get involved in community projects. Um, Have you, Lorraine, been inspired by how those around you at Wright Foundation have reacted in the face of this current situation? Yes, I definitely have. Um, I had to speak to them all um, and reduce people's hours, etc. when COVID started at first because all our um, training courses are face-to-face. And because COVID and what was happening, there was absolutely no way we could continue delivering our courses face-to-face. And slowly but surely, all our business was just crumbling away. Um, people were cancelling our courses, etc. And it was, wow, what are we going to do to save the business? So we all got together as a team very quickly 
um, and had a chat and the, the main question was, can we deliver our face-to-face courses online? We, haven't, we hadn't done that before. It was new to us. Um, but the team were absolutely amazing. And they said, of course we can. We just need to work out how to do it. <laughs> um, so that was just so positive. And they all sat down. They all worked it out. There's so much involved in delivering a course online. It's not just you switch on a computer and see someone and that's it. There's so much work behind it. And they did so well. I really, really was totally inspired. And now we have delivered courses since April online. And it's been absolutely amazing. The response from um, our customers um, has been fantastic. They've said it's just been amazing how they've been able to um, stay at home as they have to do and be able to still learn and get the skills that they need for the future. So the team's just been absolutely marvellous. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because in your line of work, um, Lorraine, I suppose that leadership transcends leadership just within the business. It extends to the clients as well, doesn't it? Given the nature of what you do. And so I think given oh, yeah. that innovation, uh, for sure, that you've um, been um, involved in and getting everything shifted um, online during this period, that seems to have been incredibly uh, well received. And that's a testament to another important facet of leadership, which is adaptability and flexibility. And for the future, especially as we move into this new normal that everybody's talking about that's going to be incredibly important isn't it yes absolutely vital in fact it's probably it has changed our total business and the way we deliver our courses and we were heading it was in our business plan we were heading towards e-learning etc for the future um but not as quick as we thought we had to move very very fast and we obviously are now going to have to seriously consider continuing to deliver um, as well as face-to-face in the future um, to our customers. There's people obviously now able to assess our, um, access our uh, courses from everywhere. We actually had a, a few people from Dubai join our courses, um, which was <laughs> just really wonderful to be able to know that they could actually join in as well. And uh, I had a lovely email from the person just saying, thank you so much because I have no, there's no way I can do these courses. I can't come and fly over to uh, the UK all the time and set a course and fly back. You know, it's just too expensive. So they were absolutely delighted. So obviously we can now expand not just in the UK, but people have access all around the world to our courses. Mm, that certainly seems um, exciting for the uh, the future, uh, for sure, Lorraine. Um, but if we do look at the uh, the past just for a moment, because we talked, of course, about how you've been inspired by the reaction of those around you during this present COVID-19 crisis. But I was wondering as to what some of the other inspirations have been through your career as you have developed. Well, basically, people I really, really looked up to and inspired me was obviously my dad. Excuse me. Um, My dad um, always um, had. He was a. He was an idea man, really, and he would come up with an idea and take it from beginning to end, and run his businesses that way. And I always wanted to work with my dad um, since I was at school, really, and I managed to do that. 
and I learned so much from him because he he taught me that um, about perseverance, don't give up, etc., and confidence, positivity, so many important things that you can give your children anyway. But he he taught me so much, and um, as I say, I I wanted to be like my dad. <laughs> I wanted to be what he did. I wanted to be a leader, and um, hopefully, I am I'm doing him proud now by uh, continuing um, his company and hopefully taking it further as far as I can. Yes. I'm sure um, Lorraine that he uh, certainly um, would be very proud of that and I think um, as well um, you raise an incredibly important uh, point there because people forget that some of the most influential leaders around us can be those who are closest to us so they can be family members they can be colleagues mentors people who really have that uh, connection uh, with us and um, we do often associate uh, leadership in this country with maybe being in the public eye don't we with celebrity and with politics and that sort of thing sports personalities as well and sometimes we can kind of fail to recognize the fact that some of the most influential people out there are those people closest to us and maybe we don't recognize that enough do we Probably not, because it, it's something, it's a habit, isn't it? You're, you're with your family and things, and you sometimes don't appreciate it as much as you should. But I think now, going through COVID, mm. we have really, 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 it's opened our eyes to how much our families mean and our friends, etc. And hopefully it's changed the nation, you know, and, and a lot of people are much are feeling much uh, love, etc. for their family. And that also goes as well for uh, the uh, working environment because uh, we've taken that face-to-face contact with colleagues for granted. There isn't really an office space as such anymore where everybody gathers together and everybody's, um, of course, having to keep connected from a distance. So I think that very human side of things, we are going to really cherish that as we uh, go forward far more than we have done before. Oh, yes, definitely, without a doubt. You, you miss your colleagues. People forget, you know, you can see them on the screen when you, <clears throat> when you have meetings, excuse me, um, etc. through Zoom, but it's not the same. It's not the same as uh, sitting down with a cup of tea and having a little giggle about things you've been doing. It's mm. not the same. <laughs> No, I agree, I agree, Lorraine. I'm absolutely. Um, I've uh, very much been uh, feeling it myself in uh, previous uh, weeks for sure. And um, if we think about what the long term future may now hold before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today, um, do give me an idea of what you envision the next year will hold for yourself and for Right Foundation, and also what you hope to achieve, not just in that time and getting through COVID nineteen, hopefully, but also for beyond the pandemic and into the real future. Yes, well, I think um, we've been very, very lucky. Um, we're getting through COVID and we definitely, you know, we, we will continue. Um, but for the next 12 months, I really, really would like to see a lot more new e-learning options. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, simply because um, it is so accessible to our customers. You know, they're, they're able to access it much more easily and um, excuse me, I'm sorry about that it's a lot of hay fever up here in Scotland (laughs) Um, further increase our relationship development um, is very important to strengthen our position in the industry and as I say e-learning will feature greatly in our future plans Um, we did intend to go along that route 
but we've been forced into it and it's been very successful. So we'll continue to do that. And it will be fantastic um, over the uh, the next uh, 12 months and beyond the range to see how things uh, get on in that re- regard. And given how informative it's actually been having you on uh, today's programme, I actually think it would be great to uh, perhaps have you back on the air with us um, during that time just to see how things are doing and catch up on some of the, uh, the new initiatives that you're getting involved with for sure. That's excellent. Thank you very much indeed. I look forward to that. I think that would be wonderful, Lorraine. Um, it's a shame we are just about out of time today. Otherwise, I'm sure we could uh, discuss the plans for the future um, all uh, morning. But um, it's been a real pleasure, nonetheless, <laughs> having you on the uh, the programme. I've really, really enjoyed um, our discussion. And do take care and do stay safe with everything uh, still going on in the meantime as well. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. That was Lorraine Nicholson, the Training Division Director at Wright Foundation Community Interest Company. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've 
become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. 
Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be the prolonged I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future 
on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into 
the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, There has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, What's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, 
interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, he has, Stam has set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.